welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. I'm excited to see a young man play the violin today. <laughs> My father plays the violin. He played at your age. and You have to be very strong to play the violin, especially for the Lord. <laughs> In Acts chapter 17 and verse 6, the enemies of Christians as they came to Thessalonica had to confess that the evangelists had definitely made an impact. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. (laughs) So maybe you think it's fantastic. One Little word could have turned the whole ancient world upside down wherever the Christian evangelists went. Yes, the world was once powerfully shaken by a little band of men from Palestine who carried news that embodied, was embodied in one rather obscure word. It was a dynamite-laden messengers. These were Christ's apostles, especially Paul and his associate, the Apostle John. The word that performed this mighty feat was one that was little known in ancient Greek-Roman world. It was a Greek term, the word agape. It meant love, but for them it was revolutionary because it came to carry a spiritual wallop that overwhelmed people's minds, catalyzing humanity into two camps One was either for it or the other was just definitely dead set against it. Those that were for it were transformed overnight into recklessly joyous followers of Jesus, ready to lose their property, to go to prison, or even to die a tortured death for him. And those catalyzed against it were as quickly became cruel in their spirit. They were bloodthirsty persecutors of those who saw light in the new concept of love But none who heard the news of agape could sit on the fence. The mysterious explosive in this spiritual bomb was a radically different idea than had been dreamed of by the world's philosophers or ethics teachers. It was a new invention that took friend and foe alike by surprise. And it wasn't that the ancient philosophers didn't have, had no idea rather of love because they talked plenty about love In fact, the Greeks had three or four words for love, but the kind of love that came to be expressed in agape mercilessly exposed all other ideas of love as either non-love or anti-love, and all of a sudden mankind came to realize that what they had been calling love was actually a veneered selfishness. The new human psyche, the human psyche was stripped naked by a new revelation. 
If you welcome the spiritual revolution, you got clothed with agape yourself. If not, having your robes of supposed goodness ripped off turned you into a raving enemy of this new Christian faith. And no one could turn the clock back, for agape was an idea for whose time the fullness of time had come. So when John took his pen and he wrote that famous sentence in 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love, he had to choose between several Greek words. And the common everyday word for love was eros, which packed in itself a very powerful punch, all right. Eros was something that was mysterious and powerful. It was thought to be the source of life. It swept like a torrent from a broken dam over all obstacles of human will and wisdom. It was a tide of emotion common to all humanity. If a mother loved her child, her love was eros. It was thought to be noble and pure. And likewise, the dependent love of children for their parents and the common love of friends for each other, it was eros. Further, the mutual love of a man and a woman was a profoundly mysterious drive. To them, it was eros. But is God eros? This is what the ancient philosophers asked. Yes, the philosophers said, including Plato, because eros is stronger than human will. It produces the miracles of babies. It makes friends and families, and it dwells in everyone by nature. Therefore, said the pagans, it must be the spark of divinity, eros, as well as of humans. And so for the ancients, love was pretty much what it is for us today, the sweet mystery of life, the elixir that makes an otherwise intolerable existence possible to endure. Plato hoped to transform the world by a kind of love that he considered heavenly eros. Words derived from it today have an exclusively sexual meaning, such as erotic, But Plato tried to get the world to climb out of that swamp of sensuality by a spiritually uplifting idea, something noble and inspiring. It was based on climbing higher, getting free of physical desires, being attracted to a greater spiritual good for the soul's sake. But John the Apostle could never bring himself to write that God is Eros. And he astounded the thinkers of his day by saying that God is agape. And between those two great ideas stretches a vast gulf as the east is from the west. The apostle's idea was revolutionary. First, if one loves with agape, we're told in 1 John 4, 17, then he has boldness in the day of judgment. Isn't that something? Without it, one will cringe in terror when confronted with ultimate judgment. But with agape, you may walk fearlessly right into God's presence, right past all of the holy angels, utterly unashamed and confident. And for the ancients, that was unheard of. And further, it says in 1 John, there is no fear in agape. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. So fear with anxiety, isn't that the substratum of human existence in all ages? We all have built in fear. 
fear too deep to recognize. Fear can make us sick. It gnaws the vitals out of our soul until one's physical organs weaken in their resistance to, to disease. And years may go by before we can see or feel it, but at last the weakest organ of the human body breaks down because of fear, and doctors have to try to repair what agape would have prevented by conquering the fear. Every sublime moral and ethical goal of humanity is nothing without agape, says Paul in his famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can have the speaking in tongues of men. You can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he says, and have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith so as to remove mountains and give away all that you have and deliver your body to be burned and yet not have the all-important ingredient. He ends up nothing And agape has a phenomenal quality of enduring all things, for he says, agape never ends, never ends. How did agape differ so much from the common idea of love? How could the apostle's idea possibly be such a threat to Plato's noble concept of eros? And the answer is found in some very clear-cut contrast between these two ideas. You see, ordinary human love is dependent upon the beauty or the goodness of its object. We naturally choose to be friends, don't we, with people who are nice to us, who please us. We fall in love with our sexual opposite, who for us we are attracted to. They are beautiful in our eyes, and they make us happy, and they are so intelligent, and they are attractive, and they turn, we naturally would turn away and not be attracted to someone who we consider to be ugly or mean or ignorant or offensive. But in contrast, agape doesn't depend on the beauty or the goodness of its object. Agape just stands alone, sovereign and free. The ancients had a story to try to illustrate this. They said Admetus was a noble, handsome young man with all of the personal qualities of excellence He fell sick with a disease that the oracle of the gods pronounced would be fatal unless someone could be found who would die in his place. And his friends went from one to another inquiring, would you be willing, please, to die for Admetus? He has this disease. The only way he can survive is if someone will die for him. And all agreed that he was a wonderful man, but said, sorry, we we can't die for him. His parents were even asked, and they said, We love our son, but sorry, we couldn't die for him. And finally, his friends asked his beautiful girl who loved him, Alcestis. And yes, Alcestis said, because he's such a good man and because the world needs him so, I'm willing to die for Admetus. And so the philosophers boasted, this is love, willing to die for a good man. Imagine their shock when the apostles said, that wasn't love at all. One will hardly die, Paul says, for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one will dare even to die. But God shows his agape for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, while we were sinners, the ugly ones, Christ died for us. Now, a message like that 
either captures your soul or it will turn you into an implacable enemy of God. Natural human love rests also upon a sense of need. Our human souls are so empty and so poor of ourselves, and we require an object, something outside of us, to enrich us. A husband loves his wife because he needs her. And a wife loves her husband because of a mutual reason. He, she needs him to complete her. Two friends love each other because they need each other. It's natural for human love. Each of us feels empty and alone and unfulfilled until we find some other, our complement, to fulfill us. But infinitely wealthy of itself, agape feels no such need. The apostles said that the reason that God loves us is not because he needs us, but because, well, he's agape. He's agape. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, and yet for your sake he became poor, so that his, by his poverty you might become rich. And even churches seem drawn almost irresistibly to representing God's love as a seeking of its own thing, a motivation inspired by God's own greediness, greedy instinct. God saw some value in us. This is what the spiritual teachers tell us or assume He was simply making a good bargain when he bought us because he thought he could make something of us. And we come to resemble what we worship. And so multitudes worship such a God because they too are seeking a good bargain. Their religion is the soul of greediness. What they want to acquire is heaven and heavenly real estate. And this self-centered motive is what keeps them going. And when agape breaks through into this self-centeredness, the reaction is pretty much what happened when it broke upon the ancient world and transformed their lives. Natural human love rests also on a sense of value. We always pigeonhole one another. Few treat the garbage man as courteously or patronizingly as we do the mayor or the governor. If, like water seeking its own level... You love them which love you. What reward have ye? Do, you not, do not even the publicans do the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others, says Jesus? Men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. But in contrast, agape is an idea from outside this world. Rather than being dependent upon the value of its object, it creates value in its object. That's what agape does. Can you just imagine something ridiculous as maybe picking up a stone on the side of the road in your hand and, uh, or a field, and now would you try to sell that and make some money on it? Why, that's ridiculous. There's no value in that. Nobody would buy it because it's not necessarily because the stone is bad. It's not necessarily bad, but because it's so common common and worthless, anybody can pick up a stone. They don't have to buy it. And eros is not bad. It's worthless, for it is as common as stones. 
Now, suppose that I would hold a a rough stone in my arms, and I could love it as a mother loves a baby, and suppose that my love could work a little like alchemy and transform it, transform a simple roadside stone into a solid carat gold. It would be worth something then, wouldn't it? My fortune would be made if I could love a piece of stone into 24 karat gold. I could put it in the bank. Well, that is an illustration of what agape does for you. Of ourselves, we are worth nothing under, other than the dubious value of the chemicals that we're made up of, which is probably valuation under $100, you know. But God's love transforms us into a value that is equivalent to that of his own son. And we read in Isaiah 13, 12, that God says, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Doubtless you've known some example of human wretch, wretchedness that's been transformed into a person of infinite worth. I think of John Newton back in the uh, 18th century. He was one of these wretched individuals. He was a godless seafarer who dealt in African slave trade, and he became a drunken wretch who fell victim to the people that he tried to enslave. And at length, God's agape touched his heart, and he gave up the vile business of trading in human beings, and he was transformed into an honored messenger of good tidings. And millions remember him not for his slave trading, but for his hymn, which discloses the fine gold that he became. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Natural human love goes out in search for God. All of the heathen religions are based on the idea of God being just about as elusive as a cure for cancer. People imagine that God is playing hide-and-seek with them, and he has especially withdrawn himself from human beings. Only special ones are wise enough and clever enough to discover where God is hiding out. And so millions go on long journeys and pilgrimages, like to Mecca or Rome or Jerusalem or other shrines, searching for God. The ancient Greeks outdid all of us in building magnificent marble temples on their highest hills in which they felt that they must seek for God. But again, agape is the opposite. It is not humans seeking after God, friends, but God seeking after man. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost, it says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. The shepherd left his 99 secure sheep that were safe and risk his life to find the one that was lost. That woman that lit a candle and searched her house until she found the one lost coin, she represents God. The search of God for the heart of the prodigal son, it was the love of the father that drew that son home after he'd wandered in the far country. This is no story in all the Bible. There is no story in all of the Bible about 
a lost sheep seeking its shepherd. It's always about the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. And this just upsets all common human ideas. And Paul was obsessed with this great idea. He says in Romans 10, 6, that the righteousness that is based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Faith, what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. God is near everyone drawing them. The word of faith is as closely related to agape as a photographic negative is to a photographic print. Faith is the response of an honest heart to this tremendous revelation of agape. And Paul's point is that this tremendous word is near you, dear heart. It's near you. Have you heard the news? Here's the evidence. God has already chosen you and elected you in Christ for salvation. He sought you out. You are the one who's been hiding from him. He's not hiding from you. The good shepherd is always on an adventure looking for you. Our human love is always seeking to climb higher and higher. Every first grader says he wants to go into the second grade. A child who is six years old says, I want to be seven years old. And no job seeker wants demotion. They want promotion. The state politician longs to get into the national game, and probably every national senator at some time dreams that he or she might be in the White House. Who has ever heard of a national president voluntarily resigning in order to become a village servant? Plato's idea of love could never imagine such a thing, and neither can we. But what sobered the ancient world was the sight of someone higher than a president stepping down lower and lower until he submitted himself to the tortured, racked death of a criminal. In what it was probably an outline of Paul's favorite message in Philippians 2, we can see seven distinct steps which Jesus took downward, steps that he took in showing us his agape, his love for us. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When we get into high positions in politics and business or even the church, it's our nature about worrying about falling from our high position. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. But the Son of God abdicates his crown voluntarily, motivated by this strange, unearthly love, agape. Paul's brilliant depiction of the relationship of the church and its members to Christ is of a body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul considers the church the body of Christ. Aren't you so glad he's the head of us all? Amen. Though our head is in heaven and the torso is on the earth, it is not disconnected from the torso. We are one with our head. Amen? I'm so thankful for that because of the potential of agape flowing through the rest of us. <laughs> I believe it can happen. I know that God believes that too. 
Paul considers the church to be the body, which is not one member but many. And as the body is one and hath many members, he says there in verse 12, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Well, there's really no English adjective that can be used to describe the relationship of the body to its head or of the various members of the body to each other. And so it's necessary to employ a Latin derivative as an adjective to describe this body relationship. I'm going to use the word corporate. We sustain a corporate relation to Christ the head. Corp, corpus means in Latin body, body. For example, all the members of that one body, being many are one body, he says, so we bear a corporate relationship to one another. We all are one body. We're a part of it, but we're a corporate group. By one spirit, he says, we are baptized into one body. The body is not one member, but many. So Paul is describing the corporate unity of the church. But there is more than unity. He says, if the foot shall say, well, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear, therefore, not of, is the ear therefore not of the body? God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. Now are they many members, yet one body. So here you have corporate diversity in the body. What a marvelous diversity this body is. And then the various members have a mutual interdependence. In verse 21, the eye cannot say unto the hand, I don't have any need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So here Paul is describing corporate need. We need each other. God has built something else into the body. In verse 22, those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. God hath tempered the body together. In other words, there is a corporate balance. Yes, there's a balance in the Hayward Church with Jesus as its head. And then the purpose of the tempering, the balance is important. Verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Here is corporate concern. Such concern expresses itself in various ways. Verse 26, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. And here is corporate pain. And if one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Thank God there can be corporate joy. The whole consists of many members intimately related. And then he says in verse 25, now ye are the members of the body of Christ And members in particular, he says. And that denotes a corporate relationship. You know how beautiful our human body illustrates this divinely inspired relationship. One day I was walking in uh, in my bedroom with the light off. And uh, it was in the middle of the night, so I didn't want to turn it on and wake my wife. And I stubbed my big toe on the corner of the bed. Oh, do you know what that feels like? And so my leg was sharing the guilt of projecting the poor toe against the sharp edge of the bed. 
and the other leg wished that it could take more of the weight so as to lessen the injury. And my eye wished that it had been more observant to see the danger. And my hand cooperated with my big toe's pain by rubbing it to comfort it. And my whole body halted in order to care for my suffering member. And in perfect cohesion and unity, it sought relief. I admit that Eros has been the prime motivator for many decades in our work as a people. But what have been the results of Eros motivation? The answer is very clear. It's a lukewarmness, isn't it? And we don't want to continue for many more decades to come going around in this vicious circle of self-centeredness. We want to learn to appreciate the cross, don't we? And we want to appreciate the cost of how much God gave to save us, that our hearts may be moved by this appreciation to serve the Lord by faith and not because of self-centered reasons of hope of reward and avoiding hell. In fact, Paul's doctrine of being under grace as opposed to being under the law has reference to this very experience. If our motivation to serve Christ is permeated by either a fear of punishment, if we don't, or a hope of reward, if we do, to that extent, precisely we're under the law. And to the extent that our motivation is prompted by a heart appreciation of God's love revealed at the cross, that's what it means to be under grace. Under grace. We read that there's 144,000 of those that will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They're the first generation in all of human history of whom this can be spoken in its ultimate sense. They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, 144,000. The first generation in all of human history. For the first time in history, the Lord has a people who have concern for his honor and glory rather than for their own security. As agape reach its depth and height and length and breadth in the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane and the cross, so agape will find its full and complete response in the 144,000 who will become mature enough to be fitted to be a mate to Christ in the final wedding. After probation closes, that the people of God will have no more fear for their own personal security. Their concern is not for their own security or reward, but simply for God's holy name. They will be concerned that their actions might bring a reproach upon him. I will not turn traitor, says Sister White, when God be most glorified and most honored by my loyalty. That's agape. This at last will become the supreme motivation. That experience of thorough Christ-like motivation will be synonymous to receiving the seal of God. I bring you the agape love of God this morning, that message, because that's the only true motive for volunteer service in the body of Christ. And when that motive is in the heart, there's no end of the corporate service that will happen within this church as well as ministry without. 
and we see evidence of its happening. Praise God for that. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.